I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. When the celebrated rapper and cannabis connoisseur Wiz Khalifa was looking to team up with a company in Canada to represent the heritage of his Kush strain, he chose to team up with Supreme Cannabis. Supreme CEO John Fowler doesn't profess to be an expert on rap, but he does know something about cannabis. As a pioneer in the Canadian cannabis industry, he talks fast and he has a lot to say. He has played a significant role in its evolution, first as a law student and cannabis activist, and then as one of the first generation to get into the medical marijuana business. Today, he sits atop of one of Canada's premier brands, his flower known to be among the best and the most expensive strains available. In addition to his mandate to provide high-quality cannabis products for commercial and medical use, he continues to be an advocate for a plant that the otherwise sober businessman believes can save the world. From the time he saw parents of his friends experiencing the medical benefits of cannabis, he has used his self-described nerdiness to learn everything he could about the plant and concluded that he wanted to share it with the world. What he learned and believed is that it could benefit many more people if it was legal. Well, lo and behold, here we are with Canada taking the lead as the first country to go legal nationally for recreational use of cannabis. As the market gets more competitive, he keeps on developing his game plan, asserting himself and his vision as not only one of the cannabis' fastest talkers, but also one of its smartest advocates. What does it mean to be a pioneer in the Canadian cannabis industry? And if you don't mind, could you set the scene for us? What is the career path for something like this? And can we begin at the beginning? I almost feel like doing a profile of you because I don't really know very much about you. I looked online and I was, you know, trying to find out a bigger story about you, like where you grew up and what you were into as a kid and things of that nature. Absolutely. When I was a teenager, I was introduced to medical cannabis seeing uh, parents of my friends using medical cannabis, which was quite interesting because I saw firsthand that cannabis was more than just a recreational drug that, you know, young people were using in college or, or out at a concert. And this was actually something that people were using for legitimate medical purposes to treat, in some cases, very severe illnesses. And I would say the first few years of, of my career in cannabis was primarily as an advocate and an activist. I was at the University of Toronto doing a degree in politics and sociology and really got engaged with, I would say, two parallel channels. The first channel being my belief that medical cannabis was real and that medical cannabis patients in this country were not getting a fair shake of the stick in terms of paying for their medicine, they're having trouble getting access to it. They were being harassed by law enforcement or, or landlords or neighbors or employers. And it's just really tough for what I fundamentally saw as sick people that needed some help in a country that says that we're committed to helping out, you know, sick people. 
And then I saw the other path was as you start to learn more and more about medical cannabis, you start seeing that, you know, maybe recreational cannabis isn't that bad and maybe it actually might be good for society. And then that evolved into seeing that in Canada, going back all the way to the Ladane Commission, which was a Senate-sponsored study done in the 70s, we have had factual evidence that the harms of prohibition of the criminalization of cannabis of cannabis on Canadian society vastly outweighed the potential harms of cannabis use itself. And, and those two uh, storylines really had me fired up when I was younger, when I was going through my college degree to be active in groups like Normal Canada, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws and other campus groups. And eventually that culminated in my applying to law school to try to be one of the lawyers that, that helped create this constitutional space for medical cannabis patients. But uh, even before that, uh, you know, as a kid, what were you into? Were you a skateboarder? Did you listen to rap music or alternative rock? I just want to get a little bit of a sense of what kind of kid you were in that respect. Did you read a lot or what were your interests then? I, I was a massive nerd my entire life. <laughs> so I, I had some athletic aspirations that quickly fizzled out when I remember my dad quite clearly said to me as a young man that, Five eight was about the top of my height aspirations, <laughs> and uh, we didn't come from good athletic stock. So other than that, you know, I was reading at a school. I always did well, always enjoyed that, always liked to learn. And that's really the lens that I applied to cannabis. I read everything I could about the plant, about the law. I read case law, really got into it, and, and really tried to look for a way to make an impact on, today we'd say an industry, but that, back then it wasn't even an industry yet. It was trying to make an impact for for patients and then later for general consumers that, you know, I thought shouldn't be risking jail time or anything like that for, for choosing to use cannabis, medical or not. And one of the fascinating papers I read when I was in school was that concept of the otherwise law-abiding citizen in North America, which is the, the cannabis consumer who on paper is, a, you know, potentially a drug felon facing long criminal sentences who otherwise pays tax, has a job, doesn't jaywalk, stops at red lights, and does all this. And what was interesting when I was doing my undergraduate degree was generally crimes, there's coincidence of crimes with other crimes. So, you know, if you commit theft, it often can go with assaults or other things like that. And cannabis crimes or cannabis charges was this weird outlier of people who are otherwise law-abiding citizens. That was really the, the initial fire in my belly to, to get engaged with with the plant and, and get engaged with what became the industry we know now. Well, and you mentioned earlier that you had seen members of your family, I think it was, who were using medical marijuana and it was helping them. Were you also a user at that time, off the books or recreationally, or how, what was your lifestyle like? So it, that was not my personal family. That was more the, the family members of friends. And then that's a really beautiful community in Toronto of middle-aged and elderly people that were using cannabis. You know, when, when I was older and, and most of my friends started drinking, alcohol was never something that was all that interesting to me. I preferred cannabis. You know, I think my parents were pretty evolved in their thinking on it, where they said, look, uh, from a health perspective, we'd rather cannabis than alcohol. If you're going to do something as a young person. But, you know, they were very clear with me that at that time, you know, a criminal incident, you know, would have some very severe impacts on my path through life. So I was always very cognizant of that and really focused on, on how I could make an impact to, at that time, you know, a community I cared a lot about uh, without breaking the law myself. But today, do you feel comfortable smoking 
personally? Yeah, so I, I've been a, a medical cannabis patient for the majority of my adult life. You know, I'm not a drinker. I don't really consume alcohol, and I do consume cannabis. And I think that's been something that's helped our company be successful because if I go out at night, I come in the morning fresh and not hungover. <laughs> you know, I'm doing something that I feel is safer for, for my body and my health and the health of people around me. And it also just means that in my social life, I engage with consumers, which, you know, are our customers at the end of the day. And that gave us the insights to build seven acres to service the cannabis enthusiast population here in Canada. And, you know, that's evolved into our ability to identify consumer groups to target with other brands, whether that's our, our new brand, Truvera, out in Europe, or whether that's Blisco, which is our wellness brand here in Canada. Right. The Supreme Cannabis Company, your position is of providing high-quality cannabis products. So you're looking at the top end of the market when it comes to quality. How do you tell if something is high-quality? What, what are the ways that you test it? Is this something you, you try on a various people, or you know, is there a way to tell if something is high-quality? Because let's say wine, I mean, you're compared to, you know, alcohol is one of the things people are always bringing up. And when I talk to cannabis people, because they always like to compare the two favorably, uh, you know, with regard to cannabis. But at the same time, there are a lot of similarities in the way people will look at wine. And obviously, they're going to have different points of view. You have experts who can tell you why this wine is better than that wine, whereas, you know, an average person might not really be able to tell. Exactly. And I think the key is, Quality means different things to different consumers and different products. So, you know, a high quality CBD oil product, you know, used by a wellness consumer in Vancouver, they purchased from Blisco is going to have a different view of what quality means to them and what they expect our brand to deliver than potentially, you know, a consumer of a Truvera wellness product in the EU or a consumer of a seven acres, you know, Jean Guy flower joint uh, from our seven acres brand in Canada. One thing we have invested in a lot is really understanding who is that consumer? Uh, what do they expect? What are we promising them with the brand and how do we deliver? So using your analogy with wine, that is what we think is the best comp for understanding good quality cannabis. So what we did is we looked at, you know, part of the growth of the wine category, particularly the premium end of wine over the last few decades, has been the growth of reviewers like your Robert Parker yeah. and people like that. And, and we said, how do we replicate that for cannabis? And so I went out and I found the guy in my life that I thought knew the most about cannabis uh, named Pete Shearer. And we hired him and, and we developed what we call the Shearer Scale. And that's a sensory evaluation panel that allows us to standardize to the greatest degree possible sensory evaluation of cannabis, focusing on aroma, visual appeal, and flavor. And taking, you know, to, to create that, we look through grading programs from, you know, USDA meat to butter to maple syrup to wine to coffee. I mean, we spent months digging through how other products that have a subjective element are graded with a view to make grading more objective. And we developed our, our panel. And, you know, the reality is the average consumer with a small amount of training has all the tools they need to separate good from bad cannabis in their nose, their eyes, and their mouth. Empowering that consumer to know what they like, what are the aromas they're after, what are the visual cues that they like in product, and then what are the things to look out for, you know, whether that's seed or evidence of bug damage or evidence of poor growing or drying practices. We train those kind of defaults into our consumer to trust their own senses and decide what, what is good or not good for them. 
Yeah, the, the idea of the consumer is is something that people are talking about as well because, you know, this industry has historic consumers, which are called, what let's say, stoners, you know, the people, the heavy users that are, represent, I'm told, a, a big proportion of the business right now, especially with regard to the plant with uh, some up to 80%. I've heard quoted that 80% of the market is based on those heavy users. Whereas at the same time, is the future the heavy users or are the future going to be a whole new breed of users who are more health and wellness conscious, you know, just grew up in a different environment, don't feel like they have to, you know, just smoke as, as all that much all the time, that they can get it, let's say, through a high quality or other ways that they can enjoy life in a more regulated, you know, sort of balanced way. So how do you feel about that, the consumer? Is the consu- and also women is a big part of it, right? Because there's a lot more women starting to use uh, CBD products, you know, marijuana, cannabis products. How do you look at the future of the industry? So I think it's important to unpack that a little bit. And, and starting with, you know, there is no one industry or one consumer group. You know, if you look at beverage alcohol, at minimum, you separated the beer, wine, and spirits. And if you're in the industry, you separate even more than that. And you understand you're not selling the same products to the same people. And consumers change and evolve over their life cycle of consumption as well. So we kind of look product-specific, brand-specific, who we're targeting. I would say the alignment between all of that is we, we would always prefer to target a consumer that's going to spend more dollars in the year. That's just, I mean, would you rather go out and find one consumer that's going to spend a thousand bucks or a hundred consumers that are going to spend 10 bucks. Is it going to be based on quantity or quality? So you can spend the same amount for smaller quantity, it's right? It's a mixture of both. At the end of the day, we earn dollars. So at the end of the day, it's all about how things convert to revenue. So if you look at beverage alcohol, there's a strategy of trade-up over a consumer's lifestyle where most, you know, the archetypal kind of Canadian consumer starts out at legal drinking age consuming pretty high volumes of alcohol per year, spending a pretty low or as low as possible dollar per unit as they can. I mean, because <laughs> they can't afford back your own life yeah. when that may have been true for you. Mm-hmm. And over time, what tends to happen is the volume of consumption decrease over your lifetime, but your dollar spend in the same period may actually increase. So you think a consumer that, you know, might be buying you know, a couple of 40 ounce bottles of really cheap alcohol when they were in college, you know, starts buying cases of beer on the weekend when they're in their 20s, you know, starts buying some nicer wine in their 30s and in their 50s or 60s might only be drinking a couple of bottles of wine a month, but they might be paying a few hundred dollars each for those wine. I think that's the ideal path. So when we look at the cannabis consumer, we want to look at what are they consuming now? What are they willing to pay for? and What will they consume in the future? But I think, you know, in all of these categories, it's highly likely that there'll be something along the lines of an 80-20 rule where a small portion of the consumer group consumes a large portion of the dollar spent for that category here. So whether it's, you know, as you call it, the, the stoner coming out of the old world, driving the vast majority of dried flour and pre-roll sales, that's what we built the Seven Acres brand for primarily, recognizing that these folks are already spending a lot of money on cannabis and it's about converting them to to choose to give their dollars to us rather than a legal or an illegal competitor. And as we look at our other brands, whether that's, you know, Blisco or Truvera 
or KKE that we partner with Wiz Khalifa to build. It's the same analysis. We're looking at who are the target consumers, what's their you know, near-term and lifetime value prospects, and how do we make them happy to part with their hard-earned dollars to A, choose cannabis products, and B, choose to buy our cannabis products, and how do we deliver that in a brand that they're excited about, that they're happy about, that they want to refer and that they want to come back to over and over again. Wiz Khalifa, you mentioned with the KKE product. So what consumer is that that uh, you expect to connect with? So what's quite interesting about the brand that, that his team is developing with KKE, it's actually a far more diverse consumer base than maybe we initially expected. You know, one, he's, he's been around for over a decade now in the music scene. So he's got a broad range of fans in America and outside of America. And then also his brand has been for sale in the cannabis space for a number of years in the U.S., and it's just delivered uh, on a brand promise quality. So, you know, they sell dried flour, they sell vapes, and they sell edibles and ingestible products in the U.S. So we looked at which of those formulations work well in Canada today, what will work in the future. Our first product launch was a really nice full-spectrum high-terpene cannabis oil that we put to market just recently here in Canada. And we'll be following that up with other products on the roadmap, but always going back to understanding who are those core consumers, how can we identify the people that are going to spend more than the average over the year? And how can we find the right levers to pull from a product quality perspective, a positioning perspective, and a brand promise perspective to, to make consumers excited to spend a little bit more on every unit of consumption and, and give more, a higher percent of their annual consumption to our family of brands rather than to our competitors. So uh, in the Wiz Khalifa brand, are you targeting a demographic or how are you envisioning, you know, the consumer? Is it somebody that likes hip hop? I mean, is it connecting with the culture that he represents part of what you're looking at? Yeah, so I'd say his core are people that they like hip hop music, but if, if you listen to his music, it's very much about having a good time and enjoying cannabis, you know, enjoying friends, enjoying people of the opposite sex, you know, just kind of having a good time. And I think that's why his fan base, when we looked into it, was a lot broader than we initially expected, why there's a lot more opportunity for that brand, combined with the fact that cannabis is part of his lifestyle and the products that we're looking to commercialize are products that he's excited about. So he can't endorse them in Canada, but, you know, as a business owner and as an entrepreneur, he, he provides a lot of guidance for what we should be selling, how we should be talking about that and how, we think that we can convert his fans to consumers. Obviously, it's a, a more restrictive environment here in Canada than what we expect to encounter when we take his brand into to other markets over time, which is our ambition. Other markets, does that mean other countries or where? What, what are you thinking about? Correct. So our partnership gives us exclusivity to market his brand here in Canada and work with the team that he's built. And then it also gives us optionality to pursue opportunities in international markets outside of the United States. And it, it, so it's a different product in the U.S. What his, his branded uh, cannabis products are different from what you're creating, right? So you're creating a completely original product. Correct. And that's just based on, you know, the, the genetics that they produce under their flagship strain, Khalifa Kush. Obviously, it would be illegal for us to transfer those genetics across the federal border. So we're looking at strategies and, and using our recent investment in Cambium Plant Sciences, which is our genetic platform, to essentially recreate that strain for the Canadian market and, and global federally legal markets where that U.S. variety will not be able to be transferred in terms of the actual cannabis itself. And then we're also you know, looking at what products are legal in Canada today 
That's how we aligned on the high THC, high terpene oil. And there's some products that I think are exciting in the future. You know, they do quite well with edibles. They do quite well with sort of drinkable syrups, so products you can add to drinks to add cannabinoids. And they do quite well in vape. And as I'm sure you know, those are all product categories that will come to life over the next six and 12 months in Canada. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, what's the best strategy to bring those to market to ensure they're compliant with, with the regs in terms of what we're allowed to sell to ensure they're positioned well for the competitive set and for the consumers we're targeting and to position us to, to be successful stewards of, of the brand here in Canada. Speaking of Canada for a minute, because Canada is a kind of a role model, right? It's still the only country that has gone fully legal on the national level. How do you feel about the rollout so far from, let's say, 1 to 10? So I think you got to give Canada a good 7 or 8 out of 10. Oh, great. So what would you like to see improved? Yeah, look, there, there's obviously there's a lifetime of improvement, and I plan to spend my career in this space, and I imagine I will, I will retire hopefully in a long time with still a list of improvements. I mean, once you take the position that, that things can't change, you've kind of given up, in my opinion. But I think, you know, you got to have a lot of respect for our government taking the lead. You know, that's not a challenging, it's not an easy thing to do on the international stage. It's not something Canada generally does much of. So full credit to them. And they had to do this from scratch. I think we can expect a higher standard of smoothness and rollout and speed from governments who are able to just follow Canada's wake, make the changes that make sense for their jurisdiction and move forward. So we're seeing that increasing rate of change in medical markets. We're seeing that increasing rate of change for wellness markets for hemp CBD on a global basis. And I would expect it'll take a little bit longer, but over my, my career, I expect to see an increasing rate of change with the legalization of THC outright for non-medical purposes as well. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but I do think we'll see that evolutionary change. So, you know, I have nothing but good things to say for Health Canada and the, the federal bureaucrats and politicians and regulators that made this happen. I don't think we can understate the challenges involved in that. I think that, you know, would I love that things move faster from a regulatory basis? Sure. But at the same time, they are improving, you know, quarter over quarter and year over year. And I think that's all we can ask. And what's great is we now have almost this national experiment from pure play private models in Saskatchewan to pure play public models in, you know, the Maritimes and Quebec to hybrid models like Alberta and British Columbia and Ontario. You know, my personal view is, is what's likely to emerge the winner, I think, are those hybrid models in the middle where the government plays a bit of a supply chain role. They help us be more efficient. They help shape the market. They support it when needed and step back when they're not. But they also allow private enterprise to really flourish at the retail level. But the reality is there's a few years into this, we're going to see these beautiful range of models across our 10 provinces. And we're going to be able to really understand what works and doesn't work. We're already seeing countries follow Canada's lead on medical, which I think is great. That rate of normalization and legalization of medical cannabis on a global basis over the past few years has just been accelerating and and makes me so happy because that's allowing access to people that can really improve their quality of life, it seems, by having legal access to cannabis. And as I said, we're seeing the same thing with the rapid, I mean, just meteoric growth of the global hemp-derived CBD market, where I think countries are recognizing correctly, it's not an intoxicating product. It's a relatively safe product. You know, as a cannabis guy in, in my heart, it's exciting to be part of a business and, and part of an industry that's really on the forefront of that. And as a Canadian, 
it's really a point of pride to see our country step up and lead for what I believe is, you know, the most exciting global entrepreneurial opportunity of my lifetime. I was a little young for the internet. Right. So, yeah, I've been hearing talk, though, on the street where there's hats, apparently, people are wearing that say, make marijuana illegal again. You know, there's still a lot of confusion and talk about, let's say, that the legal weed isn't as good as the illegal one. There's this whole gray market issue that continues to be discussed. How do you, you know, respond to to what's going on on the street with all the shops that are still around? Nobody quite knows what's going to happen with them. And with the overall trend of sort of big cannabis trying to close out these businesses who helped sustain the industry all these years? Yeah, so I think I have the advantage of, of, you know, I operated in cannabis for roughly a decade before I started Supreme. It gave me a view that, you know, one, cannabis is not new. I, I feel bad for the entrepreneurs who think cannabis was invented, you know, 18 months ago in this country, because it's a, I think if you don't know your history, you can't learn from it. And what we have in this country, in the United States, and really on a global basis is, 80 to 100 years of prohibition failed, meaning consumers want cannabis and they're willing to take some level of risk to get it. And specifically in Canada, consumers have been able to access really good cannabis at pretty reasonable prices with, especially if you're white and urban, not a lot of personal risk associated with that. So I've always been an advocate that, you know, nobody should go to jail for working with this plant. You know, I do think we need to find ways to bring more people into the legal industry. But at the end of the day, this is going to be a consumer decision. And at the end of the day, legalization will succeed or fail, not by a stroke of a pen. I mean, we did that and full pats on the back to everybody. Now it's up to industry to convince consumers to, to transition to the legal market. And what worries me is, in addition to not believing that somebody should go to jail for producing cannabis that I can do legally under a license and somebody without it, you know, should be facing what sadly in Canada is often criminal penalties in advance of some pretty horrific violent crimes. You know, I think that we really need to be spending our time and effort on the consumer and understanding what do we need to offer that consumer in terms of the three pillars of retail, which is price, quality, and convenience to offer them to do better. And, you know, I certainly love, like to say to my company, you know, if we can't take hundreds of millions of dollars of investment capital, hire and retain some incredibly smart people from a wide variety of backgrounds and do cannabis better than, you know, some people that are operating in their garage or in a little warehouse and run into Home Depot in the middle of the night to buy parts, then quite frankly, as an industry, we're going to fail. And I think we've always looked at it that we will compete over time and we will win consumer loyalty over time and we will encourage people to buy our product. And with seven acres, that's based on just producing the best possible flower that we can. Uh, with our other brands, the, the quality pitch will be slightly different, but that's what we'll win. And, and quite frankly, a lot of the product in the industry is shit right now. And a lot of the product would never be sold by the, by the unlicensed market here in this country because they know better. They talk with their consumers. And I think there's some short-sighted view. And I think that one of the reasons we ended up in where we are is, you know, the capital markets encourage quantity over quality. They encourage dropping price and they didn't encourage companies to actually really get out and understand the consumer and understand what motivates the consumer. And as a result, you know, we have millions of square feet of what I believe to be low quality cultivation infrastructure producing, not surprisingly, low quality product. And I think it's going to be challenging to find a home for all that product 
even if companies severely discount their sales price from where it is now. Do you feel that uh, sometimes that the industry seems to be overpromising in the sense that people are just talking about, you know, cannabis can cure cancer, can, cannabis can, you know, save people's lives, cannabis can do save the world through uh, the environment and all these ways that cannabis has become, you know, oversold in that respect, trying to make people think that it can be all these things to all these people. Does it really have to be that, that great a product to succeed? So on one hand, no. On the other hand, I mean, you know, look, I'm very careful of, of what we claim and don't claim, but I think for any other product in the world that didn't have the political baggage of cannabis, with the number of anecdotal stories that we have globally, and some of these well-documented from epilepsy to cancers to, you know, other severe ailments, I think for any other product, this would be front page news as the next potential blockbuster cure. So I know over the last 15 years, it was always frustrating to me to read a front page article that, you know, some smart researcher at a university had identified a new plant or a new molecule or a new treatment that might be the next blockbuster, say, cancer drug. Meanwhile, I, you know, we felt we're sitting on a bigger opportunity with all this anecdotal data and the scientific community didn't want to engage. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of legalization is on one hand, you get an enforcement of requiring entrepreneurs to be accurate in the claims they make with risk of penalties if they're not. So I think that's good for consumers. That's good for transparency. And you really open the door to a much higher level of research, both in terms of the quality research and the smoothness of the ability to enter into research. So we can figure out what's true and what's not true and what's true in part. So I think that that to me is exciting. And that's uh, something else that Canada is really at the forefront of because being a fully legal regulatory environment, having really good controls allows research partners, whether they're public you know, universities or private research institutions to partner with industry to really drive the science forward and say, you know, what is real, what's not, and, and what's kind of halfway in between. Yeah. And that's partly the problem because there's no sort of neutral or maybe there are, but, you know, when the industry gets involved with supporting studies and and coming up with uh, results, it's always speculating whether are they just being paid by these companies to come up with these kind of conclusions? Can we really trust these conclusions? So that's why I feel like nothing is ever definitive. It always seems to be somebody says this and then it's debunked by somebody else and it's very hard to find, like, a true answer. Agreed. I think there is a cannabis as a family of plants and plant derived molecules are, are extensively researched more so than many people think in the academic literature over the last 30 years. You know, the other reality is for right or for wrong, the vast majority or large portions of our pharmaceutical research in North America is partnered with industry and we accept it on that side. So I, I don't think cannabis should be held to a different standard, but obviously the ideal would be pure public studies driving that research forward without any interaction with industry. But that said, I think there are proven models where research can be done backed by industry, where the researchers are still independent, where their findings are published, good or bad, and presented transparently to academia to pick and choose how they will in terms of future research or potential product monetization from there. Yeah, at the same time, I noticed that there's a, a big increase of stories covering the industry in mainstream media that wouldn't, you know, have maybe once a year would write something. But now you see the New York Times, the Washington Post and others starting to cover the industry on a more regular basis. 
and again, you know, I am, I am not a doctor and I'm not going to profess to know what works and what doesn't work, but I don't know if there's another family of products out there that has such a long and seemingly endless list of individuals, of parents, of caregivers, of, of people who are willing to go in front of a camera and say, this worked for me. And, and I don't think that many people can be wrong, but I know to get adoption and to be able to market products that way and really normalize our industry, we need buy-in from physicians, we need more buy-in from academia, and we all need to come together and do honest, transparent, you know, ethical research. And, and again, find out what's real, what's not, and, and what's halfway in between. Yeah, because uh, the industries that have been in opposition to the cannabis, uh, namely, let's say, tobacco and, and alcohol, are now starting to actually get involved themselves investing in the companies. I agree. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, this is a, a trend that is moving. Uh, it's a trend that's global. And I think that, you know, whatever company you're involved with in the cannabis industry or not, you have to consider the cannabis disruption that's coming and smart entrepreneurs will find ways to engage with, you know, one of the fastest growing consumer segments in the world right now. And I think the ones that choose not to engage or choose to think it's a fad or will somehow go away are going to be on the wrong side of history when we look back on business performance and the disruption that cannabis is causing and will cause on the global stage. Are you concerned that over time it would lose like some of the dimensions, the historic the, uh, dimensions, the spiritual dimensions and ways that people have used the plant in the past that that will recede and it will become just a commodity like an alcohol or some cigarette that's just bought without thinking? Absolutely. The, it's a huge risk and I think it's incumbent on companies like ours to maintain that. And I believe that nurturing that relationship with consumer communities is good business sense. So we don't do it just because we, we want to. We do it because we think it's good for our business, it's good for our brand, and it's good for our consumers. And if we can maintain that feedback loop of positivity, that's how we think we'll be the most financially successful over time. But I think, you know, you look, hemp is a good example. I'm somebody who thinks that in the right hands, hemp can save the world. I think it presents a really interesting, more sustainable alternative to a laundry list of existing products from textiles and clothing, whether synthetic or naturally derived, from plastics, from, you know, energy and biofuels, and from just, you know, plant-based protein sources. I mean, hemp seed is one of the best, most complete and most bioavailable protein sources that we have on this planet. But it doesn't have to be grown that way. It can also be grown with a lot of chemicals and industrial fertilizers and pesticides. It can be processed in ways that are you know, consume lots of water and potentially create lots of chemical runoff. So just because, you know, the plant is like a tool, it can be used positively or negatively. Well, sometimes I think about the tech industry, for example, which was another sort of gold rush at one time when everybody was realizing, hey, there's something amazing going on here. Many companies were started and a lot of hope was placed in this industry that things would be done differently, the do no harm or, you know, version of, of what we can do with this tool. And now we see that that hasn't exactly panned out the way people were hoping that there are many of the same social problems exist in that industry, whether it's for women or different diversity issues, environment, and, you know, all these things that you mentioned earlier. And recently I noticed that you were 
mentioned as one of the most powerful men in the cannabis industry in high times. So I had that issue and I looked through it and I noticed that, you know, it was predominantly male, it was predominantly white. And, you know, I'm just thinking, is that something that can be addressed? You know, because here we, we're on a verge of another industry that's going to blow up and may create a lot of new millionaires. And there's a lot of promise and hope in that industry being able to do something positive in the country, in the world, by setting a, a new standard for how things are done. Is that something that's on your mind as well? So I think it's definitely, you don't have to look through many uh, executive management teams and board rosters to see that, you know, our composition in many ways doesn't reflect the consumers we hope to engage with or the communities from which our business comes. It's certainly something that we, we pay attention to involve. I'm very proud of the diversity of, of our team and the different leaders and different backgrounds, whether those are cultural, socioeconomic, or just employment backgrounds. I think diversity builds strength. I think Canada as a country is testament to the strength that comes from, you know, inclusion of diversity and embracing of diversity. But I think that's not an issue that's singular to cannabis. I think this is something that the world is grappling with from a business perspective. And I think the evidence is clear that bringing more diversity of all its types into a business, onto a board, into a management team, it gives you a broader range of insights. It gives you a lot more background and experience to draw on to make the right decisions moving forward and just create better companies. And I think at the end of the day, especially for consumer goods companies, you know, we should aspire to look a lot like our consumer group and our consumers are a diverse bunch and we need to be a diverse bunch as a company. We hope to engage with them authentically in an engaging manner and in, in a way that they're going to grow to love our brands and, and continue to support those brands over the long term. Yeah, I agree that this is pervasive in, in, in the world, in the corporate world. The difference right now for me is here's as an opportunity to help shape the industry since it's still in its infancy. And, you know, I'm hoping that there will be voices such as yours that can speak to this. And I did notice that your board is very diverse. And so that, that was a good example of something like that. Well, absolutely. Appreciate that. So now also about the financial aspect of this industry, do you feel that the market has matured enough so that at least in the financial world where you're raising money, there's no longer a stigma? So, you know, I imagine in the early days when you went to a bank or somewhere to raise money, people would, you know, sort of look at you as, you know, wondering if you were serious or just couldn't really get behind something like that for fear that it would hurt their brand to be associated with cannabis. Has that changed considerably? So it's definitely getting better. I think the pace of normalization and acceptance, oddly enough, is faster in the general population in Canada than in those in the industry. So I, I mean, still, it's hard to make it through a long meeting without somebody snickering at something or, or cracking a joke, which I don't think you see in other industries. I think that unfortunately, many people got into this industry for a view of how to generate wealth very quickly, not necessarily with a view to how to maintain value over the long run by engaging with consumers. But definitely it's improving. It's getting better. I mean, we, we don't get the door slammed in our face the way we used to back in happen. 2013 and 2014. Mm -hmm. But I think as an industry and, and with the key stakeholders and vendors and supporters of the industry, we still have a long way to go. I saw you say, uh, quoted as saying, I would like the Supreme Cannabis Company to be recognized as a dedicated actor in the social field. What do you mean by that, the social field? That everything aligns and, and you can have strong 
you know, business performance and financial success while also taking care of your stakeholders and your community and your people. So, you know, this, being a strong social actor means a lot of things. It means standing up for what we think is right in the industry and being outspoken advocates for how we think the industry should evolve. And I'm able to discharge that in my role with Supreme, but also in my role of being a board of directors member and vice chair for our, our major lobby group, Cannabis Canada, here in Canada. So it gives me a platform to, to push people to create an industry we can be proud of that I also think is how an industry is going to make the most money over the long run. There's great alignment there. It means that when we build our facility in Kincardine, we're committed to being as friendly to the environment as we can, to sourcing local trades where we can, to hiring locally and providing really good full-time employment with upward mobility opportunities, with education opportunities, and and with things like health benefits uh, to the greatest extent we can. And, And that's been able to create us as one of the fastest growing best employers in that region of Ontario. But then that's also a set of values we look for when we partnered with with Medigrow in Lesotho, a small kingdom inside of South Africa, you know, was that same idea that we can do more than just make a product and make money. We can do that while also creating a beautiful facility by advancing the national profile of the country of Lesotho and also while doing really well by the workers that come in every day and and put their hard work in to grow a product. I mean, it's farming at the end of the day. It's not an easy profession for people to take on. And we've been able to do good work in the local community there and invest in the local school and, and invest in good education and employment opportunities there locally. I saw also that you had a online, you sold out a particular seven acre strain that you sold at a very high cost, correct? Correct. So we've been just thrilled with the consumer feedback from our seven acre strains. So we, we produce four strains at a range of prices, depending on the rarity and the quality of the different strains that we produce. The feedback we've gotten from retail and retail consumers has just been phenomenal and it has resulted in a number of sellouts across the country over the last few few months since legalization. Do you imagine a time when sort of like sneakers, you know, when there's a drop where you would have, okay, we're having a drop of the super great strain. We only have so much We're it's only going to last, you know, for this long boom. And then see the frenzy of people getting that. Is that, is that uh, something you would consider or think about? So I'm a big sneaker fan and oh, yeah. I have waited in some of those lineups many <laughs> oh, times my in my life. Yeah. So it's definitely something we, we think about as we're looking to build our brands and balancing that you know mass market availability with scarcity. And those principles and those business strategies apply differently to different brands. But it's definitely something we're aware of and something that we think is a really interesting opportunity for, for cannabis brands like Seven Acres or like KKE or, or like others we may put the market in the future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. John, I really appreciate your time and being so open with me. Thank you. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash like culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>